We're going to be back in Exodus this morning. So if you have your Bibles, turn to the book of Exodus. We're going to be looking at chapter 23, verses 20 through 33 this morning. And uh, just for a little bit of context, um, basically, if you've been following along, God has brought his people out of slavery in Egypt. He has redeemed them. He's brought them to the edge of the Red Sea. They were being pursued by Pharaoh and his armies. And God said, basically, shush, be silent, watch for my deliverance. And God delivered his people through. And then in chapter 19, we were told basically that these people are God's segola. They're his treasured possession. They're to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation to represent him in the world. And then basically he has told them how they're to live that out in this covenant relationship with him. A covenant, what I look at is a relationship agreement. How do we enter into, how do we know this God? And it started out with the giving of the what's called the 10 words, the Decalogue. In Greek, Deca is 10, Logos is word. So it's the 10 words that he gives to his people. And then we saw last or two weeks ago that he gave kind of a, an illustration of a lot of case law that follows out of these 10 commandments. And now we're getting to that place where the Israelites are going to kind of ratify this agreement. And this is the last section before they do that. So that's the kind of context of where we are this morning in the book of Exodus. A lot of folks in our body have been pilots or are pilots. And uh, basically, it's my understanding, before you get up and fly, you, you file a, a flight plan, right? You, you have to know your destination. You have to know where you are going, and you have to know how you are going to get to where you are going. So let me ask you a question this morning. Where are you going in life? If you had to file a flight plan for your life, what would be the destination that you're going towards? And then the second question is, how are you going to get there? Who are you going to listen to in terms of directions to get where you ultimately want to go? I'm sure many of you have seen the bumper sticker, you know, God is my co-pilot. I hate that bumper sticker. <laughs> it's kind of like the song, Jesus, take the wheel. You know, that was a song that was played a zillion times. I didn't like that song either. You know, it's like, and the reason I don't like that and the idea of kind of God being my co-pilot is that generally I'm on the stick, right? I am the one that is directing my life in the way that I want it to go. And if, it gets really dicey, then it's Jesus take the stick, right? You, you handle it here, but I want to do the majority of the driving. I think I've got this done. The flying is, is fairly easy for me unless it gets kind of challenging, and then you can take over, but generally I want to be in charge. And we're going to look at a section of Scripture that lets us know that God is not wanting to be co-pilot in our lives. He wants to be the pilot in our lives. And he's got a destination set for us, and he had a destination set for these Israelites that was a really good destination. As, as it's described in here, it's almost Eden-like. I'm bringing you to this place, and once you get there, there's going to be plenty of food and water. And for us, water's not that big a deal. It rains all the time. But if you live in a desert place, 
water is really, really important. He says, I'm bringing you to a land where there's food and water. There's going to be not any sickness there. You're going to be fertile in terms of your families and your crops and your animals. It's going to be a great place. That's where I want you to go. But he gives a condition to get there. You're going to need to follow me. And I think Jesus has said something really similar to his disciples, right? He says, you know what? I'm, I'm about to depart and I'm going to prepare a place for you. And that place is going to be phenomenal. It's going to be awesome. You can't even imagine how good that place is going to be. And I'm going there to prepare that place. But you know what? I'm, I'm not going to leave you kind of just to wander alone and figure out how you're going to get through this life. But I'm giving another comforter, one like me, someone to come alongside you to lead and guide you to that place that I want you to go ultimately to be in my presence. So kind of with that in mind, let's read this little passage of scripture this morning, and then we'll talk a little bit about it, starting in verse 20 of chapter 23. Behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. Pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgression, for my name is in him. But if you carefully obey his voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. When my angel goes before you and brings you to the Amorites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Canaanites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, and I blot them out, you shall not bow down to their gods nor serve them, nor do as they do, but you shall utterly overthrow them and break their pillars in pieces." You shall serve the Lord your God, and he will bless your bread and your water, and I will take sickness away from you. None shall miscarry or be barren in your land. I will fulfill the number of your days. I will send my terror before you and will throw into confusion all the people against whom you shall come, and I will make all your enemies turn their backs to you. And I will send hornets before you, which shall drive out the Hivites and the Canaanites and the Hittites from before you. I will not drive them out before you in one year, lest the land become desolate and the wild beasts multiply against you. Little by little, I will drive them out before you until you have increased and possessed the land. And I will set your border from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines and from the wilderness to the Euphrates, for I will give the inhabitants of the land into your hand and you shall drive them out before you. You shall make no covenant with them and their gods. They shall not dwell in your land, lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. This is a reading of God's word. So this section starts out, and God is basically saying, I want to be your leader. I want to be your pilot, and you need to follow me. And again, God is speaking to his redeemed people at this point in time. Those he brought out of slavery into this relationship with him. And he's saying, this is what I want you to do. And the people should know, you know, he's a really good God, right? He brought them out of slavery, out of kind of this house of bondage in Egypt where they were being treated mercilessly by Pharaoh and his 
leaders and he brought them out and he brought them through the Red Sea. And then every day since then, he's been providing them with the manna day by day. He's a really good God. And he said, you know what? I'm bringing you to a place that's really, really good. He's good and he has good intentions for his people. And he says, I've already prepared a place for you. And as you read through this, it's a really good place. It's a place of plenty and provision and fertility and and health and all those things are going to be there. Our God is not a stingy God. He's not holding out on us. But oftentimes we can get to that place where we're feeling that way, right? And God is here saying, you know, just follow me in this. I've given you all these indications that I'm good, that I'm on your side, that I'm for you, that I'm able to overcome all the obstacles that you face. And even in the midst of that, the people struggle, right? And I don't know if you've had toddlers or young kids and and sometimes they do something, you know, it's like, why'd you super glue your brother's hair to the table? It's like, I don't know, you know, kind of sounded like a good idea at the time. And the reality is God knows what is best for us. And oftentimes we're like that young person is like, why'd you do that? I don't know. It seemed like a good idea at the time or most of the YouTube videos of crashing and burning, you know, they always start out with, hey man, hold my beer and you know, move into this disastrous thing that happens After that, the people at this point in time should be aware that, you know what, what makes most logical sense, what is most reasonable is for us to follow this God. This God brought us out of Egypt, right? He's he's really good. And he's he's saying that he's bringing us to a place that's really, really good. So the the logical thing is that that we we should follow him. And so he gives some strong encouragement here to pay careful attention and to follow his directions. He says, behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. Pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgression, for my name is in him. Well, who in the world is this angel? Well, as you look back in Scripture, the first time I think we encounter this guy is way back in Genesis 18. You don't have to turn there, but this is Abraham, right? And God is about to bring judgment against Sodom and Gomorrah. And he says, And the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre, as he sat, talking about Abraham, as he, Abraham, sat at the door of the tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes, and behold, he looked, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran to the tent door to meet them and bowed down, him bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. And then later on, as you go through that text, it says, the Lord said to him, or Yahweh said to him. And here we have these three angels, two we know go on in advance to Sodom and Gomorrah, but one is described as the Lord, as Yahweh in that section of scripture. Also, you look at Jacob's blessing at the end of Genesis in Genesis 48. In verses 15 and 16, and he blessed Joseph, Jacob blessed Joseph and said, the God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd 
all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless these boys. And he says, basically, the God, the God, the angel, bless these boys. And the interesting thing, that verb bless there is a singular verb. May he bless these boys. So the idea is there's God, there's God, there's the angel, but Jacob looks at that as one person. May he bless these boys. We saw it at the beginning of Exodus in Exodus 3, right? Where there's the burning bush and that's happening. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in the flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. So here we have the angel in the bush. And then it says, God called to him out of the bush. And this angel shows up also in chapter 14 of Exodus, verse 19. The angel of God who was going before the host of Israel moved and went behind them, and the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them. This is where God is coming between his people and the armies of Pharaoh, and it says the angel basically went behind, and then the glory of God went behind as well. And then we come to this passage, and there's some interesting things said about this angel, that this angel is going to be one, basically, that you're not to rebel against, that he will not pardon, and who has the ability to pardon sins? I thought only God alone. So this angel has this authority to pardon sins, and it says, my name is in him. Now, we've talked about the fact that name in the Old Testament isn't just somebody's name, Joe or Bob or Susie or whatever. It represents all that that person is, so much so that in some of the Psalms, it just says the name, and it's a personification of who God is, basically. And here it said that the name of God is in this angel. We also encounter this being, I think, at the beginning of Joshua, where Joshua comes into the presence of the Lord, the commander of the Lord's armies, and said, are you for us or against us? And he says, neither, basically. <laughs> and then he gets to talking to him, and he says, basically, take off your sandals, because the place you're standing is holy ground. Where have we heard that before? Right back at the burning bush. So here we have another kind of visible manifestation of of God. And I think you see this throughout the Old Testament. Often it's the angel of the Lord. And I think you see in the Old Testament, God is making his presence visible to his people so that they are comforted by the reality that he is close by them. And uh, the Jews talked about this as well. And this kind of idea of two Yahweh figures, the visible Yahweh and then the, the Yahweh in the heavens. Um, some call this kind of Old Testament binatarianism, that there were two gods. So there's hints of this personality of God even in the Old Testament. And this wasn't kind of anathema to the Jews until the second century AD. And it's interesting, right when kind of the whole concept of the personhood of God comes up, then the Jews are like, no, no, we don't buy into that anymore. We're 
going to move away from that. But again, to me, here you get this idea that, that God is showing up in a visible form. And in all these passages, there's kind of this conflation between the angel and God. And it says sometimes the Lord speaking or Yahweh speaking and then the angel speaking. And there's this mixing of these two identities together. And I think this is a visible manifestation of the presence of Yahweh. And so God is saying, I'm sending my presence before you. And notice that it's before you. I'm going ahead of you. I'm going to kind of reconnoiter. I'm going to map out the way that you should go. And then he also says, I'm going to guard you on the way. So God is present with his people, directing and guiding them as well as guarding them. And again, to me, this is such a picture of the work of Jesus and the Holy Spirit in our lives. He knows where he wants us to go. And he says, I'm going to guide and guard you as you go to this direction, but I want you to listen to me, to pay attention carefully to me. So who are you listening to for directions in your life? Is God your co-pilot or is God your pilot? What this little section says that God wants to be our pilot. And it's totally logical and it's totally reasonable to make him our pilot. Why? Because he knows the destination that he's taking us to and he's able to guard and protect us on the way towards that destination. There's so many voices today that we can listen to in terms of direction for our life. You can Google any topic and you get like 1.8 1.8 million, you know, hits. And you're like, oh my goodness, where, where do I even start with this? To me, the place we need to start is by asking the Lord, God, by your spirit, speak through the truth of your word and give guidance and direction to my life because I know you know the best way for me to get where I'm going. Jesus said, I've come that they may have life and have that life to the full. God's not trying to rip us off. He's not trying to rob us from life, but he's trying to give us life. But the way that we experience that life is when we follow and trust and obey him in the process. Secondly, we see here that the route to our really good destination is going to run through enemy territory. It's not going to be necessarily easy. That we need, as he says in here, to be guarded along the way. That as we sung this morning, our only hope is Jesus, right? And maybe if you're younger, you feel like, I can nail this life pretty well. And there may be a certain confidence that comes with that. And, and there's not necessarily anything terribly wrong with that. But as you get a little bit older, you realize that life has some complexities and some issues that it throws at you that you realize, God, you've got to provide direction and guidance and help in the midst of this. I cannot do this on my own. With many families, that comes when children come along. Right? It's like, Lord, help me here because I'm just not sure which direction that I need to go. The Lord knew that he was going to be bringing his people into a really beautiful land, but a land that was populated by giants and had fortified cities. And if you look at the Israelites, they were not kind of a Green Beret, Army Ranger fighting force, right? These are slaves. They've never had 
any military training and to go up against some of these people, these giants in the land, it's like, there's no way that we can handle this. And God says, walk with me, follow me, trust me in the midst of this. And as I look at this, it's like, oh Lord, I'm not going into any land. I don't have any Amorites and Hittites and Jebusites and Hivites that, that I'm battling here. How, do, how in the world does this apply to my life? But the New Testament tells us basically we've got three enemies in this world, right? The world, the flesh, and the devil, right? Those three things are constantly combining to come at us. And we need the strength of God to battle those enemies. As we look in our world today, it just seems like there's more and more pressure coming, especially from the world, which I would call our culture, to push back against what God is calling us to be as his people. And how the culture defines the good life, the goal in life, the destination, where your flight plan is heading is is very much radically different from where I think God says this is the goal and the destination that I want you to be going in in your life. And it's really hard. It's challenging to constantly push against that. And we live in a day and age where this comes in so many different ways. Life is all about what? Me today. What satisfies me? What makes me happy? And to me, you know, this is the God of the beginning when Adam and Eve were tempted and it says, you can be like God. You can make all your decisions. You don't have to listen to anybody, right? You are the one that's the captain of the fate, your fate, the master of your own destiny. You decide your course. And as technology advances, we don't even have to be locked into whatever gender we've been given at birth or sex. We can change all of that. And the push towards that is really, really strong this time in our country. And again, as we look at that, it's, it's like, Lord, how do I live in your world in the midst of this without being thought of as a hater or a terrible person? And to recognize that, God, we need your grace and your strength to do this. To me, this is very evident and obvious in the sexual ethics of our day where we're pushing into this new territory where basically anything goes. And that is becoming kind of true of many, many churches as well. And I think, okay, we're just going to go with the flow because it's a whole lot easier. And then there's churches on the other side with the God hates fags banner that are not evidencing any love or grace towards those with same sex attraction and issues in that area as well. Gallup just did a poll of, uh, people who identify as LGBTQ, and uh, they broke it down. It's about 5.6% in our country right now. Not many years ago, it was like 4.5%. But the, the thing they did is they broke it down among generations. And I'm a boomer, the tail end of the boomer. I was born in 1962. And in my generation, 2% of my generation identify as LGBTQ. Gen Z, the current generation that's coming of age right now, born between 97 and 2002, 16% identify as that. So in my generation, it's one in 50 people. In the current generation, it's basically one in six people identify as that way. 
And I feel for especially younger people in the midst of this that you have friends that may be identifying in this particular way. It's like, Lord, I want to love them. And they say, this is who they are. How do I do this? How do I push back in a gracious way and say, you know what? This is, I think, the pattern that God has for that without totally crushing them and, and making them feel horrible and recognizing, you know what? God has a plan for our sexuality and he created, he's not anti-sex, he's really pro-sex. Sex is a beautiful thing, but it's, it's one of the things that he designed to be a picture of his relationship with the church. It's the most intense, passionate experience that should be in the most intimate of relationships, marriage. And he said, I've created it to be a picture of my love for the church and there needs to be commitment 100% to that to be a full orbed experienced in this relationship. And now in our culture, it's just sex is just like eating, man, I've got a sexual need. I'm just going to satisfy that need in whatever way I feel okay about. And, and God is saying, no, that, that totally cheapens what I've given as this beautiful gift. That's my way of illustrating the love of my son for his bride, the church. And again, we live in a day and age where I think everybody has been impacted by sexual sin. That's just the reality. And you look at research, and I don't know if you can change same-sex attraction. Some people just may have that. And then how do we deal with that? It's like, okay, that the reality is, I think God is calling us all to an ethic that's higher, and we need to, to say, you know what? That's, I'm sorry, but that's not the way that you're going to flourish in life. And in our culture, sexual expression is the highest good that trumps every other good, right? That's what I need to have. And scripture say, no, that's not the priority. That's a part of who I've designed you. But Jesus lived a full, complete life as a celibate human being. If you don't have sex, you're not going to die contrary to sometimes how it feels, right? The reality is that God is calling us to a higher standard and we've got to work with people and love people and share the gospel with people. And we need to let them know, you know what? Whatever way you're pursuing, you're not going to find life in that relationship. It's not big enough to fill up that hole that's in your heart. And to me, you know, we've got lesbian marriage and gay marriage and now we have lesbian divorce and gay divorce. Why? Because people are finding that, you know what? Regardless of the direction that I pursue, this still is not enough to satisfy me. And I think we face this all the time. And one of the calls in this passage is not to compromise. Don't make a treaty with these folks. Don't say, yeah, that's okay. It's just cool. It's just a little bit. We're going to allow a little bit in to our lives and just deal with it in that way. God said, I know I want you to follow me because this is the path towards life, towards that place that I want for you. And I want flourishing and blessing in your life. And I want you to go in that way. God loves gay and lesbian people and trans people as much as he loves me. And if we treat them any differently than we would treat someone who is sleeping with their boyfriend or girlfriend, then there's something wrong with us. We need to love people and not separate from people outside of the church that are pursuing a lifestyle that we may not agree with. We need to be gracious and kind and say, you know what? The gospel is going to provide life for you like it provided life for me. And I may not have the same struggles as you, but I struggled in this area and God has given me life and fullness and completeness and, and made me whole. And whether that includes a sexual expression in your life later or not, God can be the satisfaction 
of your deepest desires. And I want you to know that. But church, we need to be loving in this area, but we also need to hang on to the truth of what God's word says. Our culture will push against us. Our flesh will push against us, right? As well. We all probably have what used to be called besetting sins. I know a lot of guys that deal with anger as one of their sins. It doesn't take a lot to set us off, right? And it's like, okay, Lord, I don't think I've got the ability in myself to change me. And that's what the text is saying. You've got enemies out there that are bigger than what you can handle. And some of those enemies are even internal within you. You cannot change yourself. One of the fruits of the Spirit is often translated self-control. I don't like that translation. I think it should be better translated control of self. Because self-control makes it sound like, oh, I've got this, I've got this handle, I've been self-controlled. No, it's the Holy Spirit that is enabling me to control myself. Because throughout most of history, we've realized, you know, if I just go in the way that my desires dictate, that's not really going to be good for me, nor is it going to be good for the people around me, right? So I need to limit and control myself. But how do I do that? And to me, you see the issue as we go through the Old Testament, that knowing what's right to do is not enough. That's why there's a new covenant that God explains in Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 36, that what God needs to do is he needs to write this law on our hearts. He needs to fill us with his spirit. He needs to change us from the inside out. So when I'm tempted to become angry, I hear that little voice from the spirit inside and said, no, you don't have to go in that direction. You don't have to smack that thing. You don't have to yell at that person. You don't have to get angry in the midst of traffic. You can just chill out. You can be a peaceful presence in the midst of this, right? He said, the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace as I drive down the highway behind that guy that just cut right in front of me, right? And we can't, and, and with God's help, we can change. He will get us to our destination. If you look through this passage, it's, I will blot them out. I will send my terror before them. I will send my hornets. And it's like all this God is saying, I will get you to where you need to go, and it doesn't need to be relying on your own strength. In fact, you won't get there ever if you're relying on your own strength. You just need to follow me. And as we go through here, we see that God goes before his people and bringing them into the land. Remember the story about Rahab? You know, Joshua gets up to Jericho and he sends the spies in and they meet Rahab and she's like, oh, wow, you know, come on up here, guys. Uh, he said, I've heard about you guys. And it says, the terror of you has fallen on the entire land. People were in a panic. And you're like, why in the world would this is a ragtag team of untrained military people that have just been wandering in the desert. It's like, doesn't seem like that would create a lot of, oh, oh, oh we're in really deep now. But God is sending his terror, his panic before them, driving them out. And I think a lot of people exited the land even before God's people came in there. And he says he's sending the hornet as well. That's either a metaphor for panic in the Odyssey. This word in the Greek is used of horseflies, and it can mean, you know, kind of to go crazy or to go panicky. Um, I used to run on the trails at UWF before I tore my meniscus, and uh, certain times of spring, there are deer flies out there. 
and you do that and you know people will think probably you're crazy and you're in a panic i remember running down the trail just doing this you know as they're coming on it's like this is crazy i remember being up at lake superior in this beautiful place overlooking this beautiful crystal clear body of water and then the the deer flies around and you're just like oh this is miserable and you go crazy and and god is saying i've got this i'm even in control of insects I've used the locust in Egypt. I've used gnats. I've got this. I will get you to the place you need to go. Even though they may be bigger than you, more numerous than you, more trained than you, I will bring you into the land. I will drive them out. The key is, are you going to listen to me and follow me? And that sounds good until God takes us in a direction that we don't necessarily want to go. And in this passage, we're told that God sends these hornets before them. I will not drive them out, verse 29, before you in one year, lest the land become desolate and wild beasts multiply against you. Little by little, I will drive them out before you until you have increased and possess the land. That our destination is assured, but sometimes the progress is little by little. As we walk through life, and we want God just to wipe out all of our enemies, right? Oh, I just want you to deal with this temper in me or this lust in me or this tendency to envy in me or gossip in me. Just take it all away instantaneously or any problems I've got. Just deal with those, God, right away. And God says, we'll work on this little by little. And you're like, no, just, you know, why can't we just enter into the land and everybody's cleared out already? Why do we have to go little by little? I think, no, I know that God has a plan for doing things at his pace and in his way in our lives. Here we're told the reason that he doesn't do that is so that the land isn't overwhelmed by wild beasts and just run wild. If anybody's had a garden down here, you realize, you know, if that thing sits kind of fallow for two or three years. It's going to be full of vines and all sorts of nasty stuff. And so here he's saying, basically, I'm going to keep these people in the land to keep it kind of cultivated, keep the wild beasts at bay so it's prepared for when you're ready and you increase in your numbers to take it. In Judges 2 and 3, we're given a couple other reasons. Basically, he says, I'm going to leave some people in the land so the generations to come will be tested. And it's like, well, I don't want to be tested. I want it to be easy. But the reality is each generation needs to grasp the reality that God is big and he's able to handle it experientially in their own lives. I know we want to be able to pass that on. If you've got kids to your kids, just, just get this. Just listen to what, what I'm saying but it's often through the difficulties and challenges of life where people experience, you know what? God's really good. He's able to handle these enemies that I face. So God says, I left them in the land to test you. And he says, and to teach them warfare, to teach them how to battle, to recognize, you know what? You can't overcome this on your own. You're going to have to depend on me. Yeah, and it's going to feel at times like your enemies are massive and formidable and you don't have the resources, but you know what? I'm bigger than your enemy. And I can work in really creative ways to give you victory in these areas of your life. And sometimes it's little by little. 
There's areas of my life where I've seen God at work in that way. And I wanted instantaneous freedom from whatever issue. And I'm not going to tell you all my issues right now, but I wanted it right away. And God's like, no, let's do this little by little. And it's like, God, why do I keep stumbling in this area? Why do I keep falling? What's your purpose in this? I know you could instantaneously take it away. And I've come to the conclusion that if God did that, I probably would have been intolerable. Very self-righteous, very ungracious towards other people. And God allowing me to slowly achieve victory in areas throughout my life, it creates a humility in us to recognize there but by the grace of God go I. And it forces us to depend on Jesus daily. And it also gives us a huge appreciation for his grace. It's not that, oh, I needed grace when I first came to Christ, but now I'm so perfect. Maybe once a month, I'll need a little bit of grace. A survey was done of people of, you know, the Ten Commandments and how many times they thought they, they sinned a month. And the, the average answer was 4.6 times a month. Maybe send 4.6 times a month. Okay, I need a little God here and there and recognize. Okay, every moment I need the grace of God to defeat this beast that is in me. And I've seen it in me when it was not controlled by the Spirit of Christ. And it's not pretty. It's really selfish. It's really egocentric. It really wants what it wants all the time. And I am only different today because of the grace of Jesus Christ in my life. And learning, you know what, I need to follow you. Because following me, it doesn't lead me anywhere that ultimately is a place where I want to go, Lord. When we struggle, our focus is often on Jesus and his grace. And to go to his throne to find mercy and grace in our time of need. And so if you're struggling, if you're wrestling, welcome to the Christian life. Victory is little by little, but I want to encourage you to stay in the battle. If you've fallen, go back to the Lord and say, God, I've fallen. God, I need your help. God, I can't beat this enemy on my own. The only deadly thing is just giving up and saying, that's nope, just who I am. I just like to drink a lot, man. I just do. That's, you know, I know there's alcoholics in my family for generations, and this is just who I am. So, you know, no, keep fighting. Keep battling with that. Victory will come, but often victory is little by little. And finally, I just wanted to say from this passage that compromise is going to curtail our spiritual progress immensely. There's some strong warnings in here. He says, when you get into the land, overthrow their gods. Overthrow in overthrowing is how it's said in Hebrew. It's really intense. Breaking down their pillars, break them down. It's like smash these things utterly. Don't allow these foreign gods and their representations in these pillars to exist. Don't mess with them. Don't make a treaty. Don't make a covenant, an agreement with these other people to live close with them. Why? Because they're going to be a snare to you. They're going to lead your heart away from the Lord. 
And again, this is, we just get weary in the battle. Don't we just get tired of constantly having, no, this is what God is calling me to do, even though the culture says this, and it's just tiring, and I don't want to be the person that doesn't get liked on social media, and I don't want to be that person because, you know, if you identify with them, then you're immediately branded as this type of Christian. So, you know what, I'm just going to shut up and sit down and just kind of not say anything, not stand for truth. Just go with the flow because it's a whole lot easier. I've been sobered recently of just so many solid, what I would say solid evangelical leaders just tubing out their lives and just what in the world, Lord? And I realize that most of us don't tube out as a blowout in life. We're just driving along and all of a sudden, oh, but usually it's a slow leak. It's the little compromises in life. It's the Lord, I got to fudge a little bit on this business deal because I'm new in the office. And if I'm going to get ahead, man, it's just, just going to help and promise when we, when I get to that position that I need to get to, then my integrity will shine like the morning sun. Or man, almost everyone around me is doing it, God. It's just, it's just, you know, it's hard. Jesus said some pretty strong stuff about allowing sin in our lives. He said, if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. I don't think Jesus was advocating self-maiming. <laughs> what I think he was saying was deal seriously with those things that cause you to sin. Let me give you an example. This is from my life. Early on, struggling with lust. I had to have my wife's you have to be the one, and this is going to date me, that has to go to Blockbuster and pick out the movies. Now, Blockbuster, for those that are out there, there's a video store you used to go in and, and get a movie. Why? Because I would gravitate towards movies that probably weren't really healthy in terms of violence and sexuality, and I'd fallen enough in that way. as I said, no, that's not where I need to go. So, babe, I know this is an area where I need to cut off my hand, and you've got to make that decision. And by God's grace, I'm not at that place anymore. But there are times when we need to say, Lord, this is what I need to do to deal seriously with this compromise in my life. And am I willing to do that? To me, I look at Solomon and it's like, this dude is like wise beyond belief. And you look at his life and everything that God said the king shouldn't do, amass foreign wives, gold and horses. It's like Solomon, boom. Let's add another one to the stable in every way in his life, right? And he's just like, and what happened? The scriptures say they took his heart away from the Lord. And then you look at Ecclesiastes. And to me, this is probably his reminiscing at the end of the life and said, God, what a knucklehead I was. I ran after all these things. And in the end, what I really realized is that to follow God, that is what I should have been doing in my life. So are you compromising with God's truth in some area of your life this morning? And we can be real good at justifying our compromises, right? And that's really dangerous because these things can become a snare to us. So when the Holy Spirit nudges you and prods you and <clears throat> pay attention Listen to the messenger, the malach, the angel that's coming to you and saying, no, that's probably not a direction that's going to lead to health 
and flourishing in your walk with God? Do you want to be a person that is full of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and control of self? I don't know about you, but I want to be that person. But I also know me, and I know I can't be that person on my own. I need God to guard me. I need God to protect me, and I need God to bring me to that destination where he wants me to be. And you know the beautiful thing about our God? He's totally willing to do that. And no matter how many times we fall and stumble along the way, if we will get up and say, God, I want to follow you, he will say, come on, let's go. It's a pretty stupid detour, wasn't it? Yeah, it was pretty stupid. But I can be pretty stupid, God. He says, I know, let's go. Let's move forward. So folks, God's got a great destination for us. He is for us. He is for our flourishing. And there's so many voices and there's so many things that come against us both internally and externally and spiritually. We have an adversary that comes against us that we need to be connected, to abide in Christ, to be close to Christ, to follow him, to listen to him, to allow him to be the pilot in our lives, not our co-pilot. Let's pray. Father, we come before you, and I just thank you for this illustration of how you want to be the one that is leading and guiding us, and that you're leading and guiding us to a really, really good place. Yet, Lord, it's a battle. There are enemies that we face along the way. It's so tempting to take back the stick and want to fly it on our own. Yet, Lord, help us to trust you. Help us to listen to you, even though your voice may be different than the majority of voices that we are hearing. Lord, even test us in this so that we have an experience with you that is real and rich and we know you, really know you. Fill us with your spirit, Lord. It's the main thing that we need. We can't do this on our own. But thank you that you've promised to give us everything we need for life and godliness. So Lord, the main thing is to give us responsive hearts. There's a stubbornness in all of us that wants to be our own God. So Lord, I just pray that you'd work on that aspect of us so that we can be more like you, to be a kingdom of priests, representing you well, sharing your love with so many that are running in so many ways looking for life in ways that ultimately are not going to bring lasting satisfaction and true joy. Change us and then use us for your glory and for your honor. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. <laughs>